We will hear two readings from Hebrew scripture this morning, each of them part of Jesus' Jesus's answer when he <coughs> excuse me, was asked about the greatest commandment. Those planning to read along may want to mark our second reading by putting a pew card in at page 133 of the Old Testament and then turn to page 204 of the Old Testament for our first reading. This first reading for today comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, starting with the first verse, where Moses reminds the people of their central confession of faith. Let us listen for what the Spirit is saying to us today. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home. And when you are always away, you lie down, and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your head, or hand, pardon me. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. <clears throat> Our second reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Let us once again listen for the guidance of the Spirit. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. May all who hear be blessed with understanding of God's word. Do you have something that you know by heart? Not just something you've memorized, but something that is, is deep, that is uh, not part just of how you think about things, but uh, is part of how you 
feel about them, the things that you strive to, to live by, or just something that is um, profound and is there for you. Uh, probably like most, if not all of you, I learned the Lord's Prayer before I could read, right? So I never learned it by reading it. I just learned by reciting, by having it be part of who I am and have continued to recite it, to say it, at least once a week for over 60 years. Uh, It it is uh, about something that matters. I have seen uh, patients who were, for the most part, non-responsive, mouth the prayer uh, when it was said in their presence. It is something that is retained, something that is received, something that is retained at a deep level. And yet, I still open up the bulletin in second service when we say the prayer together, because I know that if I get distracted, I will lose my way, and there's a possibility that everybody else will too. Uh, It is not something that is permanently stamped there. Um, It is something not necessarily known by heart uh, as much as it is known as part of community. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to say the Lord's Prayer by myself. I am used to saying it with others. I am used to reciting it with others. And that community experience of doing it is, I think, central to doing it. Uh, did a whole sermon once on the word our, which is the first word, of course. So this kind of experience, this kind of uh, designation, this kind of reality is uh, central to that Deuteronomy passage that Bonnie read. I want to take uh, the next few weeks to take different sections of Scripture and say, uh, present a, a verse or a passage that I think, at least, is, is central, is essential, is the essence of that particular part. And we're starting with the law, right? What is central, uh, essential to our understanding of Torah, uh, to the first five books of the Bible, the, the law? Um, And I tell you the truth, the first thing I wanted to do, I wanted to go to a different place in Deuteronomy, chapter 26, where the people, when they come to bring their offering, their first harvest fruits, they're required, uh, they're invited to say, a wandering Aramean was my ancestor, and to tell the story of the people, right? And uh, to focus on telling the story, but it's really not, this is the verse. Because this, like the Lord's Prayer for Christians in some ways, is a central recitation for the Jewish people to this day, uh, especially verses 4 and 5. Six words in Hebrew. Um, Shema, uh, the command to hear, to listen. And that's the name of this particular recitation. It's known in Hebrew as the Shema, right? Listen, there is something here that has been received and then retained by our people. Pay attention. Jesus said over and over, let those who have ears hear. Right? That is a central command. Listen. By the way, we miss sometimes that most people throughout history experience Scripture by hearing it, not by reading it, because most people throughout history could not read. Passages that we know, that we hear, were meant to be heard. Hear, hear, pay attention, listen up. 
this matters. Shema Yisrael, uh, a designated people, a particular people. We could just say Israel, but there is a sense of being community, of being people, and of being a called people who are called to attentiveness. Not necessarily the only people, but a called people. Shema Yisrael Adonai. Um, the actual word in Hebrew is the divine name that Jews reverence so much they do not speak the name. And so they substitute authority, the Lord. You know it's the divine name, though, if you read it, it's all in caps like that. Little tiny caps, O-R-D. Uh, uh, the Lord, the one the one who has delivered this word, the, word who, the one whose word we are attentive to, the one in whom, with whom we are in relationship. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eheinu. It is the word God with a suffix for plural possessive. How is that for too much grammar? Um, it's one word that says our God. Our God. If you see a U on the end or a nu on the end of a Hebrew word, it'll mean us or our. Okay. Listen, people, the Lord our God. And then we repeat Adonai because we're going to say something else. The Lord Achad, one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elokeinu Adonai Achad. Listen, people, the Lord our God. The Lord one. There's some implied is's in there, like uh, uh, Klingon. Uh, there is no obvious <laughs> verb for is to be in Hebrew. Um, and so we can actually render it as uh, the Lord is our God. And while there are some people who would claim that the one, the echad, is a claim of monotheism, there is only one God, probably it means alone. Only the Lord is our God. There may be other gods, there may not be, but this one is ours. And by the way, God can have other people, but we have one God. We have no other God. That is a central tenet of being a Jew. Basic, basic thing. The thing that was named by our Jewish Savior as being the greatest commandment, a recognition that he had that was a common recognition of his day. The question always comes with Scripture, uh, how do we spell that out? So the, the verses that are around this verse are about that spelling out. And uh, right after that, in verse 5, you shall love. You shall love. You shall devote. You shall obey. You shall submit. You shall offer uh, all that you are to your God. Right? All your heart, all your soul, all your might. We can spend time spelling out what we mean by heart, soul, and might. Uh, we know that in the New Testament, just to clarify that we don't leave our brains behind, uh, they add mind to this list. But the thing that matters here, the thing that's really being lifted up, is uh, it helps, it helps to think about or to, to consider what heart, soul, and might or mind might be about, but the real emphasis here is on total devotion, total submission, obedience of everything, a prioritizing of who God is and a dedication of all that we are 
to that God. It is a response to God's oneness and onlyness that we make God and God's will and God's desire for us our priority, and that all decisions and all uses of power start with that God who is one and only for us. The rest of the passage, like the rest of Torah, is a matter of spelling that out, ways to remind ourselves of this central affirmation. So Jews, uh, Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, wear things, do things that remind them. When they pray this prayer, uh, they have the little tefillim that uh, contain that scripture, uh, a, a, a mezuzah on the doorpost in literal response to what this verse says as a reminder. But all throughout the law, The commands are that you will dress, you will eat, you will farm, you will worship, you will organize yourself differently than the world around you as a reminder of who you are and whose you are. The thing that happens, the thing, as Anne shared, that makes grace a stunning surprise is that so many times in our lives, It happens that the idea that we are loved, uh, that we are called, that we are lovable, is something we forget. So these women in Reading that Anne uh, shares so wonderfully about have some way, somehow, either forgotten or never been told or never felt fully uh, demonstrated that they are both loved and lovable. And so, uh, in in the Jewish faith, there are all these reminders of who you are and whose you are. But this love and devotion are more than custom, culture, ritual. And scripture is about sorting out the implications. This relationship is not just religious only. It's not just doctrinal. It's not just ritual. It's not just symbolic. It is more than that. And so the question is always raised, is there something else that goes along with this great commandment? And so Jesus, like Jews before him and since, affirms another verse from the law as being crucial, as being critical to our understanding of what the greatest commandment really is about. It's not enough to simply say you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. There's more that spells that out. And, Jesus says, or in Luke, actually, a person who questions him says back to him, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, for Jesus, and for many Jews, is a crucial word that spells out. Others are central to your self-understanding, to knowing yourself, and others are central to knowing God, to understanding God's desire for you. Prioritizing devotion to God is spelled out through devotion to love of the other, the neighbor. So a scholar can come to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? What do you say? And Jesus puts it back to him. What do you read? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, good, that's it, that's enough. But then the scholar says to him, who's my neighbor? 
That's an understandable question. It's a basic human question. If we are told to love our neighbor, well, then we want to know who our neighbor is, partly because we want to know who isn't our neighbor, right? Who do I not have to love? What is my boundary here? That is the central deal. But it's also a scriptural issue, right? Because if you read verse 17 in Leviticus 19 and all of verse 18, which we don't always do, it's easy to understand that there's a limitation on the neighbor, right? Verse 17, first part of it, you shall not hate your, in your heart anyone of your kin, right? Then goes on to say you have responsibility to correct your kin also. And then all of verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of what? Your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we read the whole verse in context, your neighbor seems to mean members of your tribe, members of your family, those who are like you, fellow Jews. The standard question is, okay, who's my neighbor? And the standard default is people like me, people in my group. And understand, brothers and sisters, that is hard enough. Right? It is hard enough to love those who are close to you. It is hard enough sometimes to love the person next door, or your cousin, or your uncle, or a church member, or, you know, people who are part of your group. That's hard enough. So for some people, it's understandable that when we understand neighbor, we would stop here. Right? My kin. My people. We've got enough going on with them before I want to think about loving anybody else. But Jesus doesn't stick with the standard default answer to the standard question of who is my neighbor. He exceeds the meaning of neighbor beyond nation. Could spend all morning on his response, but we simply acknowledge he tells a story, which frankly I love that. It's very Jewish about him to ask him a question that has a yes or no answer, and his response is, well, once upon a time. And we know the story, right? If we know any parable of Jesus, we probably know this one. It is a story of a, of a Jew, of a member of the tribe, who is beaten, left for dead, passed up by representatives of the tribe, helped by an alien, a foreigner, an infidel Samaritan, who then becomes the example of what it means to be a neighbor. A lot of times when we look at this story and a lot of the memes, pictures, and so on that you find on this story, we're being invited to say that the person who is wounded, the person who has been beaten, the victim, the, the poor, uh, the helpless, that those are the ones who are our neighbor and deserve our help. And that is a good teaching. That is an important teaching, right? Over and over, you see all kinds of pictures of people passing up somebody who has been hurt, wounded, otherwise lying on the ground. And, and that's not a bad lesson. That is an important lesson. That is a crucial lesson to reach out to those who are the least of these, to those who lack basic necessities. They are our neighbors. That is not, however, what Jesus is teaching here. He is not teaching in this particular lesson that the person who is beaten and left at the side of the road, the victim, is our neighbor. He is teaching that the Samaritan is our neighbor. 
the one whom we understand to be the outsider, understand to be the stranger, the alien, the foreigner, the one who does not believe things correctly, the infidel is our neighbor because he is an example of being a neighbor. He is the one we are called to emulate. He is the one who obeys the greatest commandment. Jesus could have told a story that was what we usually take from this, help people who are hurting. And we should. But the genius, the absolute annoying genius of this story is that he gets us to say that this one, this other, is the neighbor. He stretches us. He's not inventing a teaching, by the way. Um, this is the only other one I could find that gets that message across. Thank you, Tonto. Um, he is not inventing something new. He is not correcting. This is so often how Christians teach this. I probably have too. We say, oh, oh Jesus was a good Christian who was correcting those Jews who, who just were so tribal, so limited. No, 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 no. That's not what he is doing. He is focusing and illustrating what is already a critical Jewish understanding of one's role. You shall love your neighbor as yourself uh, is, is, uh, uh, invites the question, who is my neighbor? Uh, but Jesus, what he is doing by extending the definition of neighbor, he's just moving a few verses on in the same chapter where it says, you shall also love the alien as yourself. So that the law the great commandment in its two parts, love God, love neighbor, is right there with what Jesus is saying. He's not inventing a new thing. He's not unlike the Jews saying love people who are beyond the Jews. No, he is like the Jews saying extend your definition of neighbor, of nation, of God's children beyond yourself to those are strangers, foreigners, aliens, not part of the tribe, because you know what it's like. It is an invitation to empathy, to feel what it feels like to be someone else. Parental experts say the most important thing you can teach a child, because children are at their very course, uh, very center. Core, um, selfish, megalomaniacal little cheaters. <laughs> Sorry, you know. And the best thing you can teach them is to move beyond their hyper-awareness of what it means to feel like them to ponder what it feels like to be somebody else, right? Um, I exaggerate only because children are just like us, except more so. <laughs> right? Empathy, to feel what it's like to be somebody else. When a lot of people want to think about the essence of the law, they think that legalism is the essence of the law. I would suggest that empathy is the essence of the law. Teachings that invite us to move beyond ourselves. The core teachings there are ones that move us to feel with other people. 
1969, this is a little later than 1969, it's a replay of what Fred Rogers did in 1969, when the country was divided in so many ways, but particularly in ways that were uh, reflective of a division between uh, police officers and many of the communities that they policed, particularly communities of color, in 1969. We haven't gotten over that, have we? In 1969, Fred Rogers staged a scene with a man who was already one of the characters on his show, uh, Officer Clemens, where he didn't make speeches about what it was like to be black or white. He didn't say that white people should love black people or black people should love white people. He didn't say anything about being a police officer. He didn't say anything about whether or not people of color should get along with the police officers or vice versa. He simply invited a character who was a black police officer, already on his show, had been for a year, to come and on a hot day share a foot bath. He didn't say white people were pouring bleach into their pools to keep black people out. He didn't say there was this fear about contamination. He didn't preach. He enacted a story that invited others to think about what it might be like to be someone else. And they just talked about the heat. And they talked about the cool water. And Fred Rogers washed Francois Clemens' feet, uh, wiped them dry at the end. I use a picture of a later, same uh, version of this, uh, more than 20 years later, because Fred Rogers is wearing a tartan. It is a clergy tartan. It's the only tartan that's part of being a vocation because Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, right? And he loved wearing that tie, reflective of his calling to serve God. He understood that his vocation, like his Lord's, was that he was taking sides in a human struggle to apply the love of God to all those whom God loves. It is our vocation also. Let our hearts 
be in tune as we come and worship you.